But I'd like to invite you all, if you would now, uh, to bow your heads with me, and let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together in his word. God, we've sung this morning of your glory and your grace, especially as it's been shown to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We give you worship and honor and praise, Lord Jesus, you are worthy, for you have overcome. You lived a righteous life that we could not live. You died on the cross in the place of sinners and rose again, triumphing over our sin and over the grave and over the devil, and you now are seated at the right hand of the Father in splendor and majesty. And Jesus, today we want to hear from you. We want you to change our thinking, shape our affections and our desires, and conform us to your image so that we can bring you glory. We pray now that your spirit would be active in the preaching of your word, and we pray in your name. Amen. I'd like to invite you this morning to turn uh, to Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We've been um, preaching for a little over the last year through the book of Genesis, But today, we're going to be beginning a new series, not one that's going to take us through one book of the Bible, but one that is going to explore several different topics that Scripture teaches on. And I want to just begin this series by listening to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, and we'll be reading only through verse 27. This is God's word to us. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. There's really three ways that you can live your life. One way to live your life is according to your own desires, your own ideas, your own inclinations, what you think is best. We could say that you could live life submitted to self. Everyone's submitted to something. But Proverbs 14, 12 warns us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. If it seems right to you to listen to your heart, to follow your own wisdom and reject the claims of Christ... Proverbs says that way leads to death, or Jesus says in Matthew 7, get ready for destruction when the winds come and the rains come. But there's other ways to live your life. You can live your life maybe not submitted to self, you know, according to your desires and thoughts. Maybe you decide, I'm going to live my life according to conventional wisdom, you know, to what everyone agrees is best. You could say this would be submitted to the world. Maybe when you need to know what to do with your squirmy toddler, the first place you go is to, you know, the mommy blogs on the internet. Or maybe, you know, to social consensus, what people are saying on social media or what your mom's group says. Maybe if you're trying to decide what to do with your life or your career, how to manage your finances, you'll listen to academic scholars and experts. Whatever area of life you're in, you just go to say, you go to see what people are saying 
What people say works. What people say is best. And that can be kind of low culture social media or your neighbor, or it can be, you know, the professors that are teaching on the hill up at KU. But listen to this warning from Colossians 2. Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There is a way of thinking, a way of believing that leads to a pattern of living that everyone agrees is a good idea. The problem is it's not according to Christ. Jesus says, if you don't hear my words and do them, you're building your life on a foundation of sand, and you won't be able to stand. But there is another way, not submitted to self, not submitted even to the world, but there is another way, and that is to live our lives according to divine revelation, to be submitted to God, to the word, to our King Jesus. The word of God gives us more than just good advice. We find in the scriptures God's authoritative word. In the scriptures, we discover more than just a way you know, to approach marriage or to raise our kids, or to handle our finances, we find the way. More than just what works, we find what is right, what is good, and what is true. More than just man's opinions, we find timeless truth, truth that does not change like our own perceptions do, and like the consensus of society does. In the scriptures, we find a solid rock to build our lives upon. That's why Paul exhorts us in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How do we do that? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How should we live our lives? Romans says, renew our minds so that we can live our lives according to the will of God. Not, not the secret will of what God knows will happen in the future. We don't get to know that. But the revealed moral will when God says, this is how I want you to live. This is what is right and righteous. This is what pleases me. This is the will of God for us. And this is what we must order our lives by. When our mind is renewed, we can discern what is the will of God. Which means there's really not three ways. There's actually two ways, isn't there? The right way and the wrong way. And as you read your Bible, you'll begin to see that this has always been how it is. There's always been two choices before us. To bring our lives into conformity with God and what he says, what he reveals his will to be, or to choose some other path. I mean, just think about it. I know we've already preached through Genesis, but just to remind you what happened back in the garden. God had told Adam and Eve what his will was for them. He'd given them his word to live by. He said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth in Genesis 1.28. In chapter 2, he tells them, eat of everything you see. I've given you every plant, every tree for food, but do not eat of this one tree. They had a choice before them, didn't they? To live according to God's word, to submit their life to him in faith and obedience, or to trust in a competing truth claim. And shift their allegiance from God to self. We know what their choice was. They decided to ignore God's word. To violate God's will. To do what was right in their own eyes. And the decision resulted in tragedy and loss and death. But that's not the only time God's word was put before man. And everything hung in the balance. Remember we got to Noah in chapter 6. God told Noah to build an ark. 
and to gather all these animals up and, and his life would be spared. And Noah, it says in, in Genesis 6.22, did all that God commanded him. We read past that because we're familiar with the story. But think about that, that Noah did all that God commanded him. And what did this result in? It resulted in rescue. It preserved life for Noah and his family. And he found himself on the other side of the flood as he walks into this newly washed world. He finds himself the recipient of a covenant promise and a new commission. God tells him, now you go, be fruitful and multiply. We see this going, happening also in the call of Abraham. God gives him his word. He gives him instructions. He says, here is what I want you to do. He says, go to a land I will show you and I will bless you. The future of Abraham, the future of the nation Israel, God's redemptive plan depended on Abraham's response to what? To the word of God. To the word of God. This theme of embracing God's word continues at Sinai as Moses leads the people out of Egypt and they arrive there at the mountain and God's presence is manifested there. God says, now therefore, in Exodus 19, 5, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in verse 8, all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. You see, the word of God... I mean, this is just a little sampling from the first two books of the Bible. We could go on and on for the rest of the morning, but we won't. The word of God has always been of utmost importance to the people of God. In Deuteronomy 6, we see this instruction given. This is you know, as God gives the law to his people. He says, these words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Does it seem that God's word for his people is important? It would appear so, wouldn't it? Remember God's word to Joshua when they're getting ready to enter into Israel. What did God say to him? God said to Joshua in Joshua 1.7, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It was an embrace of God's word that saved the life of Noah and his family. It was an embrace of God's word that made Abraham into a great nation, that brought success to Joshua in the conquest. And on the flip side, it was a failure to abide by God's word that wrecked creation back in Eden. That cost Moses the chance to enter into the promised land. That cost King Saul his crown and eventually his life. And it would eventually cost Israel the promised land. They would be taken into exile, into Babylon for decades because of their failure to abide by the word of God. No wonder Jesus says in Matthew 7, as he comes as the full revelation of God, the one who fulfills the law and demands faith and obedience He says, if you hear my words and don't do them, 
You'll be like a house that's built on the sand. When the wind and the rain comes, the fall is going to be great, and destruction will come. We get to the New Testament and discover that our obedience to God's word find its focus in our response to Jesus Christ. Will we hear him? Will we do as he commands? Will we build on sand? Or will we build our lives on the rock-solid truth of his authoritative word? As I mentioned earlier, we're beginning a new series this morning that we've titled Living by the Book. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be examining God's will, his revealed will, his pattern, his design for his people. For his people in various stages of life that we find ourselves in. God's design, for instance, for marriage or a biblical understanding of singleness. Instructions for children. There's going to be a sermon just for the kids as a part of this series. There's going to be messages on parenting. There's going to be teaching for those who are in the home stretch of life's journey. Our goal in this series is simply to understand what is God's word for us. How are we to live in the various stages of life that we find ourselves in? Because we want our lives to be built on the rock. But before we get to any of those topics specifically, I want to share with you this morning three reasons why it is so essential for us to live by the book. And this is in addition maybe to some of the observations we've made as we've kind of rushed through um, whole portions of you know, mankind's history in the Old Testament. But I just want to share three, three brief reasons with you this morning why we must live by the book. Number one, we must live by the book for the sake of God's glory. For the sake of God's glory. How we live matters. And it matters for many reasons. But first and foremost, above all the other reasons is the fact of God's glory. God's glory is our ultimate purpose. That's what you and I were created for. We were made in his image for his glory. And that's what we were saved for. You read Ephesians 1, you see that we were chosen and redeemed and adopted and forgiven and made alive to the praise of his glorious grace. We were created and saved for his glory. Therefore, God's glory must be our highest aim. If you and I live life in a way that dismisses or devalues or ignores or contradicts God's purpose for our life to bring him glory, then we're missing it. The fact that God made us for this purpose has moral implications, that this must be our highest aim. You and I are to live for God's glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Of God. What does that really mean, though, to live for God's glory? Um, if you've grown up in church, you've heard that language, God's glory, glorify God. What is glorifying to God? But what do we mean by that? Well, it means, number one, that we want everything we do to please God, to make him happy. If you're grieving God, if you are, if you are testing his patience, if you're rebelling against him and disobeying him, that does not glorify him. To glorify God has, number one, this idea of pleasing God, to make him happy. We want to live and work and love and play and sing and rest and die in a way that honors God. So there is a vertical aspect to glorifying God. It's worship. It is a life of 
worship. Paul says in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, yourselves, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is how we serve God. We live to please him. Our lives are to be a pleasing sacrifice to God. There's a vertical aspect to glorifying God that is for him. But it also means, secondly, there's also a horizontal element to glorifying God. It means that we want everything we do to proclaim the worth of God to those around us. This is that horizontal aspect. So vertically, it's worship. Horizontally, it's witness. It's witness. There's an element of witness here that our lives are to announce his worth to a watching world, to point others to the greatness and to the goodness of God. We want our lives to be a living, breathing amen to his truth, a walking billboard that draws attention to God. That's part of what it means to glorify God. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who hears when we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us? Well, God hears, but those around us hear as well. When you live your life in a way that's completely out of step with the way the, the world lives and people go, what is wrong with you? Or maybe what is so right with you because you have something that I don't? We get to point them to Christ and to say, listen, our Savior told us that, that we are to live our lives in such a way so that our good deeds are seen by all, so that the Gentiles glorify God. I mean, that, that is how we are supposed to live our life, so that others see God's truth displayed. They see that God is worth our obedience, that, that sacrificing our time and our money and our resources, that there's joy and reward in that. To see that the way we relate to our spouses, the way we shepherd our children, the way we endure suffering, the way we spend our retirement, that it actually shows we have something in Christ that can't be found in the world and it's better than anything else. That glorifies God, it tells the world that he is sufficient and satisfying and glorious and worthy. What all of this means is that ultimately your life is not about you, is it? And mine isn't about me. It means your marriage is not about you. It means your singleness is not about you. It means your career is not about you. It means that the blessings and the joys you get to experience are not ultimately about you. And the suffering and the trials, and the difficulty, and the adversity that you face is ultimately not about you. We exist for God's glory, and we are to spend ourselves to please him and to praise him. This is the biggest why underneath the what and how of Christian living. I mean, a lot of times people talk about Christian life, and it's mostly focused on here's what you should do and here's how you should do it. But we have to start with the why. For instance, Ephesians 6.1 says, children, do you guys know it? And somebody, kids tell me, what's Ephesians 6.1 say? Children, what? Obey your parents in the Lord. That's the what, right? That is what you are supposed to do. But the second half of that verse tells us why. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for what? This is right. This is right. 
meaning this is what pleases God. Kids, you know when you obey your parents, you're worshiping God. You're giving him glory. That's worship. We also know that husbands are supposed to love their wives sacrificially. In Ephesians 5, we see this incredible way that husbands are to sacrificially love and lead and serve for their bride. But why? Why are we to do that, husbands? Well, Paul tells us that marriage is meant to portray the mysterious beauty of the gospel, that our marriages are intended to tell the world what Christ's love for his bride looks like. That's witness, isn't it? That people see, and they see more than just us. They see more than just a marriage that's unique. They see something of the glory of God in that. That's the why underneath the what and the how. And this means that everything we do has eternal value. It means that being satisfied in your singleness has eternal value. It means that seeking God and growing in wisdom as a college student, instead of prolonging your adolescence, that has eternal value. It means that children doing what your parents tell you with a heart and a spirit that honors God, that has eternal value. So here's the question. Can we truly honor God? And can we faithfully represent him in the world if we neglect or reject the pattern of living that he's given us in his word? Not a chance. If we want to glorify God, we must live by the book. This is how we can please God. He's told us what it looks like. This is how we can live as salt and light in the world and give others a reason to ask us about the hope we have within us. It's if we live our lives by the light that God has revealed in his word. So the first reason we must live by the book is for the sake of God's glory. But there's a second reason. We must live by the book for the sake of faithful discipleship. Faithful discipleship. If the first reason has to do with worship and witness, this is really about our obedience, our responsibility. A disciple is first and foremost a follower of Jesus. If you remember in Mark chapter 8, 34, Jesus calls the crowd to him with his disciples, and here's what he says to them. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow me. The implication is if you don't, if you won't deny yourself, if you won't ever do anything hard, taking up your cross, and, and if you won't embrace this new direction in life, this new pattern in life by following Jesus, then you can't be his disciple. You aren't, by definition, his disciple. When we come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins, we not only get a, a clean record, praise God for that, we also get a new master, a new master. Christ is master. All the apostles, you read the New Testament, they're always calling themselves the doulos of Christ, the slave, the servant of Christ, that he's the master. And that puts us in this position of the pupil, the servant, the slave. See, salvation is not found in self-actualization or self-esteem. It's found in self-denial and faith in Christ. And self-denial looks very simply like obedience very simply, what Jesus is saying is, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, obey me, receive my word, and don't just believe it, do it, do it. Jesus said, if we truly love him, in John 14, 15, 
we will keep his commandments. Later, the apostle John expanded on this idea in 1 John 2, 3. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Living our life by the book has everything to do with true biblical discipleship. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is our calling. To live our lives in submission to Christ, in obedience to his word. Now, does this mean that our salvation depends on our efforts, on our performance, on our obedience? No, absolutely not. Our salvation depends not on our works, but as we've sung earlier today, it depends on Christ's work. He is the one who has already fulfilled the law, and his righteousness is given to us by grace through faith, and it's through faith that we receive salvation. But, but how we live gives expression to that faith. It's a necessary evidence of saving faith. A life of obedience is the fruit of faith. A life submitted to Christ is evidence that our faith is alive and able to save and not dead. In John 15, 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If there is no fruit, if there is no good works, if there is no obedience, if there is no self-denial, if there is no following Christ, you very simply are not a disciple of Jesus. And you have no assurance that when you stand before the judgment seat on the final day, that you will be welcomed in to the kingdom. Because you've lived a life that has never demonstrated you possess the kind of faith that saves. A disciple of Jesus is one who believes the teaching of Jesus and obeys it. It results in a new direction of life. But a disciple of Jesus is not just one who follows Christ and obeys him. A disciple of Jesus is secondly one who helps others to do the same. Our master has given us a mission to make disciples. There's no such thing as a faithful disciple of Jesus who's not making disciples of Jesus. If you attempt to follow Christ, you can't do that apart from calling others to join you in following Christ and helping them along the journey. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Did you catch that last part? Teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. We are supposed to teach others to obey the word. You have a responsibility. You do, each one of you, even if you're not a pastor, even if you're not a dad, even if you're not a parent, even if you are a younger person, you, all of us, all of us have a responsibility to help others follow Christ. And that part of that means obedience to the word. So let me ask you, how can we faithfully obey Jesus and help others to do the same in all areas of life if we don't know what he has commanded? Go teach them everything that I've commanded you. Great. Okay, I want to do that, but I have no idea what we're supposed to be doing. You're not going to find much success 
in carrying out this mission of discipleship. And that's why I just want to encourage you this morning. Some of you might be tempted to clock out over the course of this series when we talk about marriage because you're like, you know what? I'm not married uh, anymore, or maybe I haven't been married uh, yet, so I guess these two sermons don't really apply to me. Um, Some of you might be tempted to clock out if uh, we talk about parenting and you don't have kids yet. Or maybe you're past the stage where you're actively, constantly, you know, teaching and parenting your kids. But consider that part of God's will for your life, all of you, part of God's will for your life is to help others apply apply the word. To encourage and exhort and teach others to obey and to apply the word. To Exhort them to order their lives by the scriptures. So that means we all need to know what God's will is for our lives so that there can be mutual accountability and encouragement. So I hope that all of you will be eager and interested, even if what we talk about on a given morning is not directly applicable to your life. We believe what Paul wrote to Timothy, that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training or instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be be perfect or complete, mature, ready for every good work. We can all benefit from all of these passages of Scripture that teach us about different areas of life. So we need to live by the book, number one, for the sake of God's glory. We need to live by the book. We must live by the book, secondly, for the sake of faithful discipleship, if we're going to follow Jesus and help others do the same. But thirdly, we must live by the book for the sake of our own joy, for the sake of our own blessing. If living for God's glory has to do with worship and witness, if faithful discipleship has to do with obedience, you know, the sake of our own joy, this really carries the idea of wisdom. Wisdom. We need biblical wisdom. And this isn't the, the primary aim or the first thing we lead with, but listen, this is actually good for us. This will actually bless you and improve your life. If you order your life by God's word and you walk in wisdom, there is joy and reward and blessing. It doesn't mean everything's easy. But when you live your life the way God designed it, it does work better. It really does. God's truth is true. It's true. I love what Psalm 19.9 says, just starting in verse 9. Why don't you turn there? I want you to see this. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 19. Now, I want you to see the promise of joy and blessing as the psalmist goes on and on about the truth and the, and the beauty and the goodness and the value of God's word. Start in verse 9. Actually, back up. We'll go in verse 7. <clears throat> verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by these rules that he's already mentioned, By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. 
Do you want your soul to be revived? If you're a simple person, do you want to be made wise? Do you want your heart to rejoice? Do you want your eyes to be enlightened? Do you want to escape danger and, exp- and receive great reward? Then come to the rules, the precepts, the law, the truth of God as revealed in his word. There is blessing here for us. There's a heinous lie that's been told ever since Genesis 3 that if you abide by God's word, you're just going to miss out. Yeah, it's technically the right thing to do, but it means that you're, you're going to miss out on some of the good things in life. You're not going to have as much fun as other people. And you're going to have to sacrifice things that otherwise you could have really enjoyed that would have made you happy, would have brought satisfaction. There's a heinous lie that God is stingy and he's trying to keep something good or satisfying or needful from us when he tells us, don't do this and I want you instead to do this. But friends, there is nothing further from the truth. Again, this doesn't mean obedience is always easy but it does mean obedience is always worth it. What this means is that not only can we look at living by the book through the lens of obedience and disobedience, what pleases God and displeases God, what is is faithfulness versus rebellion, that's a right way to understand it, but we can also understand this in terms of wisdom and foolishness. Do you want to be wise or do you want to be a fool? To obey is wise, To disobey is foolish. To believe and trust God is wise. To believe and trust our own instincts or the wisdom of the world is foolish. Too many people ignore the great value of wisdom and they do it to their own peril. I want you to flip over to Proverbs 3. You're not that far away if you're already in Psalms. Flip over to Proverbs 3. Again, consider the joy and blessing and reward that comes to those who seek wisdom and find wisdom and live their lives in accordance with God's wisdom. Look in Proverbs 3, starting in verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her, the gain from getting wisdom, is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Go down to verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. There is great reward and blessing and joy that comes when we seek and find and abide by God's wisdom. And if we choose to ignore that, if we take the path of scoffing, it says you alone will bear it. Listen, some of us make our lives harder than they need to be. And we do so because we're foolish. 
because we do what's right in our eyes and we don't live according to the scriptures. The call to live by the book is really an invitation to wisdom. It's not just that it glorifies God, though it does, and that's the most important thing. It's also that it's good for us. God loves us. He desires to bless us, and he invites us to embrace wisdom. This is not only a necessary act of obedience, it's the only spiritually sane thing to do. Wisdom leads to joy and blessing, but foolishness leads to sorrow and regret and pain. When we seek to live by the book, we're really positioning ourselves to enjoy God's blessing, and it all starts with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to fear the Lord means that we take his word seriously. To fear the Lord means that we search his word out. It means that we obey it. It means that we value it and that we esteem it over and against and above all other claims to truth, over our own assumptions and thoughts and desires, over the agreed upon consensus of all the experts out there. To fear the Lord means we hear his word above all else. So let me ask you this morning, what shapes your attitudes about life? What shapes your priorities? What guides your decisions? What influences who you're going to date or how you're going to parent your kids or how you relate to your spouse when there's difficulty or disagreement? Is it self? Is it society? Or is it the timeless truth of God's unchanging, authoritative, perfect word. If we're not actively seeking to renew our minds and hear the word and meditate on God's truth, we will be led astray. We will forget. We'll be influenced by faulty and blind guides. We'll fail to live for God's glory. We'll fail to follow Jesus as we should, and we will sadly miss out on the joy and reward and blessing that comes from walking in his perfect will. We must live by the book for the sake of God's glory, in order to be faithful as disciples and for the sake of our own joy. So I hope that as we dive into some of the specific topics over the next several weeks, I hope that you will come eager to hear and eager to do, eager to receive God's truth with a heart to obey it and a desire to help others do the same. Because if we will give ourselves to this, God will be greatly glorified. We will fulfill our calling as disciples of Jesus, and we will taste the blessing and joy that comes from walking in wisdom. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and in it you've revealed the magnitude of your glory and the call to follow Jesus as disciples. You've revealed to us the way of wisdom But Lord, we must stop and confess that if it were not for your grace in opening our eyes and unplugging our ears in a spiritual sense, we could never see, we could never hear. If it were not for your grace, we could never understand the good news of the gospel that we receive salvation and forgiveness not through how well we do all this stuff. We receive it because of what Jesus did in his life and his death and his resurrection. Jesus, we thank you for that gift of eternal life, and we now pray that you would strengthen us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been given, that we would live in a manner that is consistent with the gospel that we believe, this good news, that we are new creatures in Christ, 
I pray, God, that if there's some among us today who have only and always lived for themselves, I pray that they would understand that what they need to do today is come to the foot of the cross and confess their sin and repent and believe in Jesus for salvation. Only then can they begin this journey of discipleship. Lord Jesus, you said that you are the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. We all have to start at the cross. That's where the journey begins. I pray that if there's any among us today who have not begun that journey, that today they would recognize their sin and trust in the shed blood of Christ to forgive them and make them new so that they can join us in following Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, we pray that you would help us to be faithful. We want to glorify you. We want to be faithful followers of Jesus. We pray, God, that you would, as we spend time together the next several weeks, in your word, we pray that you would show us wisdom, that you would make us wise, help us to see, so that we can taste the joy of walking closely with you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.